So we'll be uh, uh, having uh, our speaker up here in just a minute. Uh, next week's topic is the U.S. presidential race. Does Hillary hold the Trump card? Oh, brother. Anyway, we won't. Uh, our speaker is Dr. James Tagg, and I think most of you know him. He's a fairly well-known uh, uh, historian from our area, and uh, that's next week. Um, okay, so uh, the microphone is over there, and we would ask that you uh, identify yourself, uh, keep your comments brief and your question to the point, and uh, we'll anticipate quite a few questions, so we'd like you to move, move along uh, quite quickly. So um, I have one question that was given to me by uh, someone who doesn't want to uh, uh, be at the microphone, but I'm going to uh, use her name anyway because she put her name and we have to identify the name. This question comes from uh, uh, Joe Aristone, and her question is, how can we resolve the uh, racist problem when we have yet to solve the misogamy problem? Uh, women are still second-class citizens in Canada and especially uh, in their work world. Uh, uh, this is not going to happen in our time, is it? So we start off on that one. Solve that one for us. <laughs> Thank you. Well, no, I don't think it's going to happen um, in my time anyway. Um, I'd have to live quite a bit longer. I think that we have to understand that the roots of discrimination and the roots of disadvantage are shared amongst the various ways in which women and other groups are treated in society. Where we have any kind of privilege, be it male privilege, be it racial privilege, we have individuals who do not see themselves as being privileged necessarily, but do see themselves as perhaps being invaded or losing their rights when others seek to have the same kind of social status and advantages in society. Frankly, I don't think we can separate misogyny from racism in our social practices of resisting and creating a reflective solidarity with others, but that we really have to understand that when we stand out and speak out, we have to address these broad issues and their interconnections. And the only way, I think, to be able to resolve any of this is to increase, not decrease, our social connections and to listen and converse with one one another to find some solutions that we share even as we respect differences and as we challenge those who would hold their privilege against us. Thank you. Okay, Tad. My name is Tad Mitsui. Thank you, Joe, for an excellent presentation. My question is, I don't think everybody believes in engaging in war from time to it's necessary, there's such concept as justifiable war. If so, how can you avoid categorizing certain population or using the mentality of a collective punishment 
when you have to engage in a war. I myself is a pacifist. I don't believe in the war, but most of the people do believe in the war. You have to demonize certain sector of the population to engage in the war because you shoot at somebody you don't know. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think you um, asked a question that's been bedeviling Canadians uh, clearly for a century when we think that 100 years ago so many men from this city were off fighting in a war. And I must say in recognition of Japan, so many Japanese men were in the Vancouver and Victoria Harbor uh, fighting with us as our allies. And of course, we're in the trenches with my father. I think that the issue that we need to keep in mind is not the individuals or even the collective social groups that become our enemies, but we have to look more deeply at what kind of economic and social practices are going on so that we can address the underlying formulations of the causes and justifications of war. We're not going to move towards a peaceful uh, society with any kind of economic and political stability if we continuously demonize groups in alternate rotation. So I think that what we have to be doing is looking at the political and material basis for these terrible conflicts and trying to find a way to resolve that rather than relying on our increasingly devastating technological wars. Thank you. Hi, Joe. Uh, my name is Frances Schultz, and thank you so much for the depth that you chose to look into in giving this presentation. It's much appreciated. What I would like to ask is, what is your take on the media's help that seems to go to people that have very racist statements to make but can stay anonymous? Does that, is, is, is there a responsibility there towards the fact that I think they're helping to spread the message? Well, I think that, um, you know, our um, ongoing battles with anonymity on social media says a lot about whether or not we feel we can speak anything um, as long as we're not known. I mean, in the hate laws in Canada uh, say that you can have freedom of speech until you distort facts. Uh, particularly in our teaching. We cannot teach things that are not true. We can, um, in anonymity, we argue, get away with these things. But in fact, we could not and should not. And I think when we look at some of our newspaper chains, we'll realize that those comment sections have gone. And that argument was that, speaking from anonymity, it took the editors an enormous amount of resources and time to weed out contemptible uh, entries. And I think all media has that responsibility. And we we do confront that very frequently in our local paper with the roasts and toasts. Um, and I don't know the process for um, editing those out. However, if I were to write a letter to the editor um, expressing some of those sentiments, I know that letter would not be printed. 
So we do have two different layers of monitoring, and I think it's something that we need to take under advisement. And I would suggest to those of us in Lethbridge, when we find what is in um, the roasts and toasts offensive, um, if we find it dangerous in close or explicitly within hate speech, we need to address uh, the, 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 the paper and ask them to clarify their policies and perhaps improve on them. Okay, next. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell. <coughs> I want to ask you basically a question from an anthropological perspective. Um, going back about close to 65 years, I was a new immigrant in uh, the Okanagan Valley with my family from Germany. So it was common that we were known as bloody Germans. Notice though, we're the same race. A couple of years later in the newspaper, um, about five years later, an influx of Portuguese settlers came to the Southern Okanagan. And our family was just stunned in reading this a headline in the paper, a Portuguese gentleman had found a hunting rifle and turned it into the police. The headline was, contrary to what we usually hear about immigrants. So my question to you is, that was about 65 years ago. Have we as a Canadian nation evolved beyond that? And is there a better way to differentiate bigotry against people of the same race, rather than saying racism, which sort of implies different races. My two examples were both Caucasian. Thank you, and um, I have to say that when you arrived in the Okanagan, that's where I was living as a young child. Um, I, I think that there's a number of things that happen here. When we label people as immigrants, we don't intend to create a category in people's minds that there are people moving to be with us and part of us in a healthy and welcoming manner. But immigrant seems to carry with it a subtext of someone who comes with some almost a, like an, an invasive quality um, and they have to prove themselves. And so to move to the term racism, we often mingle the two of immigrant and race. And of course, uh, 100 years ago, when your ancestors and my, my father were fighting in the First World War, the idea was that Germans and English were very different people, when of course they weren't. And you know the heads of our countries were first cousins. Um, and it was very difficult, my father told me when I was a child, to sustain in the troops a hatred across that no man's land. And so my father, like many, many members of the First World War forces on both sides, would tell tales about the humanity of the enemy, their social interactions of the enemy. And these were really, really splendid tales that were used, at least in my little community in the Okanagan of Summerland, 
to teach us to move beyond those categories. And since I was born at the end of the Second War, that was extremely important because the anger and distrust and um, antipathy between those who originated in Germany and Austria and those of British descent was so very, very strong. Um, and of course, it was equally strong in some respects between families of Japanese um, heritage and non-Japanese in my town, even though my father fought in the trenches with Japanese uh, men. So we do have, I think, an example, if we go back to the Okanagan, um, of recognizing that it doesn't always work, but we need to find ways in which we can connect. And so I was fortunate enough to grow up in a neighborhood where we had uh, at least two generations of people from Japan, people from Germany, people from Austria, and we were encouraged and indeed punished if we didn't co-mingle respectfully and even affectionately. The term racism, I think, has um, a very unfortunate history because its history was used by Europeans to separate nationality, one from the other. And its meaning, of course, is not biologically grounded, but it's a social meaning in which we find as societies ways of differentiating between groups of people. Um, and I am all for the push to find a language that is both more accurate and more hopeful than the term racism. Thank you. Thank you. Douglas Mitchell, uh, following on, but I don't want to touch the war thing at all. I'd like to go, I thank you very much for your insightful address. I also am an immigrant about the same time as Mr. Mundell. Uh, and my wife also, she's from England, I'm from Scotland. Scotland has had the foresight to, to out of the population. We'd like to continue with Brexit, but that's another discussion. Uh, but I wonder, you know, with our experience, uh, having traveled around the world, spent two and a half years latterly in Indonesia, as well as West Africa and elsewhere, how much our original, uh, training and experience in Scotland. We came to Canada knowing nothing about Aboriginal problems, really, or very little. We didn't find out about them until we got here. And then, of course, you then you rub against their racism issue very much. And I wonder how, what you think about the how much one's background. I find travel must broaden the mind in, in this respect. And I just wonder, what could you make some comment on on that in respect to the importance of one's back, background and heritage, perhaps, in in regard to fostering racism, which is very prevalent here. We notice that very much, and whether it's because of the right wing tendency of, of our, many of our people. You know, I, I think this um, this question is, is, is really a complex um, one. And it addresses the fact that it is not travel itself or it's not association with difference itself 
that resolves a problem, but very much it's the mindset, it's those preconceptions we take into it. If we travel the world um, with a um, acceptance of these kinds of master statuses that have already denigrated, we take those preconceptions and we read and we read the meanings of the individuals and collectives according to those master statuses. If we have been fortunate enough in our personal lives or our community or in our education to know ways of overcoming those preconceptions to carry forward a questioning mind, then of course all of the experiences that we have when we go around the world enrich us. But there are times when I recognize individuals who leave their hometowns here in Canada taking preconceptions and they go to elsewhere and they read entire communities according to the stereotypes they had before they left and they come back with the anecdote that reinforces that. And then of course we have this kind of echo chamber where individuals who have those preconceptions will pick it up and say, you know, my friend Jack went to such and such a country and he came back and told me everybody was an idiot, so everybody's an idiot. And he knew that before he left and he went there and he wasn't surprised. So I don't know that there's an easy answer to your question. Um, I'm just very glad that you uh, came to Lethbridge in Canada and recognized the challenges and have committed yourself to addressing them. Okay. <clears throat> I'm Avatanas from Pixie Butte. Thank you for your presentation to make us aware that collectively and individually it's our problem that we have created. Uh, I don't want to go back to when I came to Canada because I was also born overseas. <coughs> but just a few weeks ago when a criminal act was committed in Lethbridge here, the person was arrested and he is shown on TV and his name was there a police uh, a lawyer made a comment that the Lethbridge Police Service paraded this man in front of the camera before he was charged. Three cheers for the lawyer. However, a week later in the police report, we read that the facilities where the prisoners can be unloaded without being seen by the public is under construction. So now, it's in the court of the media. So the media prints another paper, another document, with him shown there, his name there, and in the same article it says that there is a ban on publicity from the court. Now where is the media in all this? Don't they respect the court? Don't they respect somebody's privacy? I don't know, you might wanna, you don't have to speak for the media, but. You don't want to blame him either, but it's a question that should be on everybody's mind. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, if I'm going to do any finger pointing, I'll dodge the media at this time because we have members of the media here. Um, and uh, we can all speak uh, uh, with them. I do want to say that it strikes me as highly irresponsible for the police to... Uh, parade and accused in this manner in front of the media. And the media, of course, have the right to take the picture, but that's not necessarily the right thing to do. I will go that far, and I say that we may all have rights, but it's not always right to act on them. I 
frankly, am very disappointed that the police did not find alternatives to this exposure. I think they could have moved the prisoner at a different time. They could have found ways to create barriers and indeed to um, protect privacy, particularly given the fact that all of us who live in Lethbridge know that when you march a First Nations man in front of the public who is accused of a crime, particularly a horrendous crime, but even a minor misdemeanor, you are going to open up every First Nations person in our city to some kind of blowback and racism. And that is irresponsible. Perhaps the police don't create the problem of that widespread racism, but I really think they have to take that context into consideration, recognize that they have a responsibility to deal with it, and that protecting one man's privacy means protecting and respecting every first patient, uh, nation's person's, every Métis, every Inuit person's right to being dealt with with respect and consideration in this context. And that was not done, and I think that's a failure. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Van Christou. Um, at a time in this world's history when a number of, a high number of, of educated people throughout the world, especially in Europe, uh, even in Asia. I uh, have a handle on five, six, seven different languages. Uh, here we have a, a lot of trouble in learning two. Um, my, my question is around, do you think that there's a connection between how, uh, how able we are to handle this business of discrimination and un unilingualism? Oh yes, oh yes. As I mentioned earlier in my talk, I suffer from the disadvantage of unilingualism, and I have to say I've even forgotten how to speak Pig Latin, which I don't think anybody else <laughs> has to confess that failure. Um, the, the thing about knowing other languages allows us a wealth of knowledge. That would be my first argument, that if we know Arabic, French, German, all of these other languages where in we then get different information, we have access to uh, different perceptions of the world, and we can think beyond the box of what we uh, receive in our soul language uh, through our own media and through our own conversations. Extremely dear to me is the loss of First Nations languages. If we could speak First Nations language, if we had not destroyed First language Languages, as a society, we would have had a really rich threshold, not only to understanding and communicating with our neighbors and our community differently, we would see and understand the world differently. When we speak and think and converse in a different language, we do have an entirely different way of apprehending the world and responding to it. The clinging to the notion of English as somehow the apex of a civilized conversation, I think, is downright stupid. 
can't say it in any other language, so there you bought it. Thank you, Joanne, for your comments and also your talk. Uh, I'm Mary Shillington. I had an interesting and disturbing experience, uh, not this week, but last week, when I was staffing the regional NDP office, when a large man came in to talk, talk to me, you know, over 6'2", good-sized man, uh, and had totally opposite uh, opinions about what it was to deal with the Aboriginal people on the streets downtown in Lethbridge. We had uh, an interesting conversation. I, I told him I wouldn't agree with him with, with practically anything he said, except I did identify that he had fear as he walked the streets and went to different places, and he had lived on the street at different times. He was a marginalized man, uh, as far as uh, Caucasian, but mar marginalized. And, and he, he d used that statement, we should send them all back to the reserve. Uh, of course, I didn't agree with him. Uh, but I guess I was struggling with how I can hear him and respect that this is his perspective but I, that I didn't agree with him, and I certainly made that clear, but we meet people like that regularly. What would your advice be as the ally? How can we do that in a, a caring, respectful way to the people who are not allies of our Aboriginal people? Well, first of all, I don't think we can respect their perspective. This is where I think we have to, to consider that terminology of reflexive solidarity, where we recognize the difference between opinion and doctrine. And so we can't say, well, you're a racist and I'll expect your, your racism and I'm not, because suddenly we are now racist. Okay, What I think we have to be able to do is to try to guide the individual to understand where the fear comes from. Why the fear? I mean, my neighborhood directs me to be afraid of First Nations people. But when I fell and hurt myself, it wasn't in front of the home of a First Nations person. It was in front of the home of a Caucasian family. And it was Caucasian people that walked by me and refused to offer a helping hand because they thought I didn't belong. So we have to deal with where people's fears come from. And we have to embolden people to confront their fears. What we need to be able to say is, I recognize that you've had experiences in a certain social area that have caused you fear. How can I help you to feel safe? What do you need from me that you can be safe in the social context in which we live? What can our government do for policies? How can the municipality help you? What social organization can I connect you to that would give you a greater sense of safety? But we cannot say I respect your views when we know that doctrine is inherently wrong and dangerous. This will probably be the last question. Uh, my name is James Moore. Kinenes kumaitan itagosinian ota. That's nehido Cree for thank you for coming here, and I'm standing in Nitsitapi territory. Thank you. Oh, there you go. One comment on that. Well. We do have time for one more question then. Not James, I was surprised. I thought you'd have had a... 
Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, Joanne, getting back to the, the title of the talk, Fanning the Flames of Racism, uh, I hear all kinds of people say, well, things are getting better, so, so uh, we're on the right track. But when situations like this come around, obviously we may not be getting that much better. Could you uh, relate to that? Is social media is a, is a big, big factor in this, so could you talk to that a little bit? Well, you know, wh whenever something goes underground and we don't have to confront it or we are able to live in our little social bubbles and not um, experience it, we often feel that the world is getting better. Um, if we have really strong neighbors who have in some way been disadvantaged, uh, bullied, or treated in a racial fashion and they don't show what they're suffering, we think the world is getting better. So we have one incident in the city that suddenly explodes and shows us that things have not necessarily gotten better. We may have been able to constrain some of the anger and the hyperbole and the unjust treatment, but that's as far as we've gotten, okay? Um, is social media the problem? I don't think that social media is only the problem. I think one of the advantages of social media is we really do know how other people are thinking. We know what other people are doing, and we're able then perhaps to take some action because we know it's out there. Without some kind of public expression, we don't know it's there. Now, that's often the argument that some of my peers would give for freedom of speech. Um, I may not like what you say, but I can defend your right to say it, or I may not like what you say, but if I don't let you say it, I don't know you're thinking it. To some extent, that's true. If they don't say it, we don't know it's there. But I think that social media, given its particular format, allows the almost elusive platforms on which to express it. So if we have something like Facebook that adheres to hate laws, for example, they can censor in some way or the private newspapers can censor in some way. But there will be another media that shows up, another platform that shows up that people can express this. Um, I, it's our obligation to know what people are saying. It's our obligation to know what people are doing. And it's our obligation not to deny it, not to ignore it, but to act on it. We simply must always be ready to stand up and to speak out. And we have to know what we're standing up to and what we're speaking out against. Um, this is an ongoing problem, and whenever we have economic and political turbulence, we will inevitably find a rise of this kind of scapegoating and this refusal to move beyond our preconceptions and to take some appropriate social action. And we have to do that on social media as well as anywhere else. Thank you very much, and thank you. Join me in giving applause to you.